You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing the murder of realtor Lindsay Buziak. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the pod, as the cool kids say. Maybe. I don't know. I'm 30 now, so who freaking knows? I hope that you guys are having a great week so far. I hope that you guys had an awesome Labor Day weekend. Is it getting colder wherever you are? It got a bit chilly here last week where I live, and a lot of people were freaking out because it meant like the death of summer or whatever else dramatic the people in my neighborhood have cooked up. But honestly, maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but I think summer is extremely overrated. There. I said it. It's too hot. It's too sticky. My makeup melts off. I hate all of my summer clothes. I am honestly so happy for it to get colder so I can bring out all my cute sweaters and cardigans and booties. I'm ready. I'm so ready. I went to TJ Maxx and I hoarded like a buttload of candles. My family is so confused with why I filled our spare closet with like a million candles, but I just love fall. Call me basic. I don't care. I'm still going to love it. So I'm sure you guys are all aware a bunch of super famous cold cases have been solved recently. I mean, obviously the Golden State Killer has been huge and talked about so much in the media this past summer, but there is also the case of Alyssa Tornay where her stepdad, who has been a suspect for like the entire time, has finally been arrested. I'm guessing that maybe law enforcement was waiting on some like concrete incriminating evidence to turn up and it seems like it finally did so I'm curious to see how that all unfolds and when we're going to be able to hear about it and last week there was another crazy case that was just as old as the case that we discussed last week um, in 1972 Pamela Malam's murderer was discovered through DNA, Jeffrey Lind Hand. So someone um, in law enforcement was smart enough to collect DNA evidence knowing that it could be useful in the future, although it wasn't useful then. They like knew the advancements that were hopefully going to take place with the DNA in the future, um, and they collected it. And although it was put into CODIS years ago, there wasn't a DNA match until recently, and now that sick son of a gun is in jail. So, serial killers are murderers of the past, if you're listening. If you haven't been caught yet, don't think you've made it out scot-free. You should be very, very concerned, because DNA advancements are going to catch up with you and you might just be next. There are unfortunately no updates on our past cases at this time, but I'm going to continue to look into all of them every week. So that way, if there ever is an update, you'll hear about it here or on our Instagram at mystery still unsolved. And are you following us on there? Because you really should be. I post several visual aids regarding each episode every Tuesday, because as much as I can talk and blab about it on here, hearing about it, 
doesn't always do it justice. Sometimes you have to see it to really get a feel of what we're talking about. So follow me there, engage in our discussions, send me DMs of a case that you think I should look into. I'm always looking for a case that needs to be heard. Again, that's at Mystery Still Unsolved on Instagram, and I will see you there. Right? I will see you there. I'm like doing a Jedi mind trick on you right now. Today, we are going to be talking about Lindsay Buziak, a beautiful up-and-coming realtor who went to show a million-dollar home to a potential buyer, and less than 15 minutes later, she was dead. This is one of Canada's most notorious unsolved crimes. If you don't already know about this case, well, then you should know about it, and I'm going to catch you up to speed today. If you already do know about it, then you know that we really never should stop talking about this baffling case until we get some freaking answers and someone, well, a certain couple is brought to justice. So what are we waiting for? Let's get started, shall we? On the 31st of January, 2008, Lindsay Buziak received a call on her personal cell phone from a woman with an accent asking if Lindsay would assist her and her husband in looking at several properties. Lindsay was a 24-year-old Remax realtor in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. She was relatively new to her job, but she had a huge support system of realtors in her corner. In fact, her father was a realtor in Calgary. Her boyfriend was a mortgage broker who also held a real estate license. And the Remax that she actually worked for was managed by her boyfriend's mother. It seemed to be a perfect fit for beautiful, outgoing, and friendly Lindsay. Although she had only been doing it for a tiny bit, she really felt like it would be a promising career for her life. Her sister, Sarah, has said that Lindsay was a very good saleswoman. She was extremely approachable and hardworking. People really liked her and people easily trusted her. This potential client stated that she and her husband had a budget of $1 million. Lindsay was obviously over the moon. Real estate is commission-based after all, and if she was able to snag the sale, it would be the biggest sale for her yet. Better yet, the woman said that she and her husband were in a huge time crunch and that they needed to purchase a home within the next three days. Seemed like a win-win. But something about the call seemed a little off to Lindsay right off the bat. And she even mentioned it to the potential client while she had them on the phone. You see, Lindsay had just started out, remember, and while she had sold like a couple of properties, she hadn't really built up a large clientele. What made this call even more unusual was that the woman had called her on her personal cell phone, not her work cell phone, but her personal one. Lindsay asked the woman how she had gotten her phone, her phone number. The woman said she had met one of Lindsay's past buyers who highly recommended her services. Seemed to make sense, I guess. The two hung up after setting up a time and a place to meet up. February 2nd at 5.30 p.m. And Lindsay reached out to her past client to like, I guess, thank them for the referral and just to make sure that the connection was legit. However, her past client was either out of town or chose not to respond to the text because Lindsay never heard back from them. Lindsay spoke to her dad 
boyfriend, and friends about the mysterious call that she had received. She was obviously elated to have such an opportunity kind of like fall from the sky into her lap, but part of her wondered if this opportunity was perhaps too good to be true. It wasn't just the fact that they had called her on her personal cell phone, but it was also the fact that the woman who called seemed to be faking her accent. Lindsay was quoted by friends as saying it sounded Spanish-esque, but there was something that didn't seem very authentic or genuine about it. Lindsay jokingly referred to them as the Mexicans as a jab to the woman's fake-sounding accent. She was getting even more uneasy as time went on because she received another call from the woman um, the day of the showing, saying that she would actually be unable to go but that her husband would be coming instead alone to the showing. Lindsay's gut feeling wasn't feeling good about the sudden change. Her boyfriend Jason and his mom encouraged her to take the clients. It was honestly a huge opportunity for Lindsay, especially with her just starting out. If she could nail the offer down, it could bring her to a whole other level of future clients. Remember, real estate is mostly word of mouth, so if these clients liked her, they could potentially refer her to their other rich friends. Her dad, Jeff, also being in the real estate industry, encouraged her to show the house to them, but even he admits today that when Jason offered to wait outside the property in his car while Lindsay showed the couple the home, it did bring him a sigh of relief. Jason was 6 foot 3, 250 pounds, and an ex-pro hockey player. Lindsay's dad says that Jason could be extremely intimidating if and when he wanted to be. On February 2nd, Lindsay and her boyfriend, Jason, met for a late lunch. Jason and Lindsay had been dating for roughly over a year. They lived together in a property owned by Jason's mother, Shirley. It appeared to most that the two were very happy, but according to Lindsay's dad, Jeff, Lindsay had recently visited him over the Christmas break and had disclosed to him that she had had some reservations about her relationship with Jason. He claims that Lindsay said that Jason could be possessive and controlling at times and that Lindsay didn't know if she wanted to continue to be in a relationship with someone like that. Lindsay was a free spirit after all, who was also incredibly ambitious and determined, and she felt like being in a relationship with a man like Jason might prevent her from reaching her dreams and living life on her own terms. At lunch, Lindsay and Jason went over their plan to help her feel safe. Keep in mind that Lindsay really did want to make this sale. If she was overreacting, she didn't want to like risk turning off the potential buyers by letting them know that she thought that they might be serial killers. Like, I want to sell you this house, but my boyfriend's waiting outside just in case you're serial killers. But as you know, that tends to offend people who, you know, aren't serial killers. <laughs> So Jason came up with a plan. Lindsay would go to the house at 530 in her own car and begin showing them the property. A few minutes later, Jason would arrive with some paperwork that he needed her to sign. Remember, Jason is a mortgage broker, so this type of exchange wouldn't be all that unusual. It definitely wouldn't be unprofessional, and it wouldn't seem like Jason was barging in on the showing, acting like an overprotective boyfriend. It would just appear to be to the potential buyers as a work-related stop. After lunch, Lindsay returned home to change for her big showing, and Jason went with a friend to shop at a sporting goods store. You see, later on that night, Jason and his friend had, like, a 
hockey game with like a local hockey team and they needed to buy a few things before the game. The home Lindsay had found for the couple and where they had decided to meet up was located in DeSosa Place. DeSosa Place is a small cul-de-sac containing only four houses. DeSosa Court is named after the developer, Joe DeSosa, who is a friend and associate of Shirley Zaylor, Jason's mom. Around 528, Jason notices he was going to be a little late. He and his friend had lost track of time at the sporting goods store, typical men, and he texted Lindsay that he was on his way. At 529, the lockbox with the key to let Lindsay and the couple into the property was unlocked. They can tell this by looking at the data provided by the lockboxes system. Lindsay wrote back around 530 saying, okay, don't worry, the Mexicans just arrived. And guys, this is for any men who might be in the house today. When your wife, girlfriend, sister, mom, friend, whatever, asks you to be somewhere because they feel uncomfortable, don't be late. Freaking be there when you say you're going to be there. Show up on time. No. Better yet, show up like 30 freaking minutes earlier. I know that you think we're paranoid, but it's only because you've never had to live in this world as a woman. There are so many things that we as women have to think about that you have never had to think about. I personally talk to the men in my family all the time about this. For example, men, when you want to go to the gym, you can go whenever the freak you want to go. 5.30 a.m.? Sure. Can't make it until 11 at night? cool. You just put on your jock strap and you head on over. Women have to be careful. We have to go to the gym when it's more populated, which is a pain in the freaking butt because then the machines that you want are taken. But you don't want it to be so populated that there's going to be like a wolf pack of bros staring at your butt the whole time and not too populated that people won't notice you either because if you were to go missing, you want a witness to have made a note of you to share with the police. Men, you have it so easy with your testosterone and your beards. At 5.38, Jason texts Lindsay to let her know that he's almost there. Lindsay doesn't respond, and in fact, the text message is never even opened. This isn't all too alarming to Jason in the moment because he knows that Lindsay is very professional and she likes to chat. He takes this as a good sign because it means that Lindsay is showing the couple the home and doesn't want to be rude and like check her phone constantly. Jason drives into DeSosa Place at approximately 545. It's at this time that he sees the back of a man and a woman entering the house. Jason thinks it's a bit unusual, but doesn't make too much out of it. Was it possible that Lindsay had gone outside to meet the couple by their car and had talked to them for about like 10 to 15 minutes and now they were just starting the house tour? Is it possible that the couple was about to leave, open the door, but just then had a few more questions for Lindsay or wanted to see the kitchen just one last time? Jason and his friend Cohen sat in the car talking for a bit, But as the time dragged on, they began to worry, especially since Jason had sent Lindsay some more texts asking if she was okay and how much longer she thought she'd be with no answer. And those text messages weren't being opened either. After a few more minutes, Jason and Cohen felt like they couldn't wait any longer. They really felt like something just wasn't right. They approached the front door and attempted to open it, but the door was locked. 
This really made Jason worried. He called the police asking if they would mind coming down and doing a welfare check. As they spoke to police and looked through the windows, they noticed that a back patio door was slightly opened. Phew, they thought. Maybe Lindsay was just showing them the backyard, and that's why nobody could hear them knocking. Cohen went around the back, and no one was there. He did decide to go into the house through the patio door and let Jason in the front door. And by now, it's 6.05 p.m. When Jason came into the home, he noticed Lindsay's heels neatly lined by the front door right away. He called out her name multiple times with no response. Now Jason was panicking. He bounded up the stairs as he continued to scream her name. He ran into the master bedroom and that's when he saw it. Lindsay lying on the floor in a pool of blood. She had been stabbed multiple times in the chest, neck, and face, essentially decapitating her. He called 911 again. They were already on their way and he let them know about the new discovery. The operator instructed him to perform CPR, which he did, although he knew pretty much the whole time that it was probably too late. Soon, he and Cohen heard sirens, and Cohen waved the officers up through the master bedroom window. It was 6-11, and Lindsay was dead. It was apparent to police immediately that whoever killed Lindsay in that home had gone to meet with her for the sole purpose of killing her. She had not been sexually assaulted. She had not been robbed. Nothing from Lindsay or the house itself was missing. But Lindsay had been stabbed 40 times. Complete overkill. Especially when you take into consideration that Lindsay was petite. She was actually only 5'2 and 99 pounds. So... To stab her over 40 times is just completely insane. It's not like she could really put up a fight. Absolutely 100% overkill. Police believe that Lindsay was killed between 538 and 541. They are quite confident in this timeline because at approximately 540, a phone call was placed using Lindsay's phone to a contact. The person didn't answer, but they did get a voicemail with shuffling, muffly sounds. It is now believed that while Lindsay was being attacked, her phone in her pocket had dialed someone, and this person had a voicemail of Lindsay's murder on their phone. And oh my gosh, can you imagine? Police believe that Lindsay was attacked from behind while on her way to show the couple the ensuite bathroom. They believe this because there were no defensive wounds on her body to indicate that she had any idea what was about to happen to her. Cohen and Jason were immediately brought down to the station for questioning, but were released soon after as their alibi was able to be confirmed by the use of surveillance video from the store that they were at before they came to the home. It should be noted that Jason and Cohen were very cooperative during the investigation. Their alibis checked out, they agreed to polygraphs, and they both passed. They went with the officers and did a walkthrough of the property where they shared all of their knowledge from that day. You can actually watch a short two-minute video clip of Jason taking investigators through the home on YouTube. Now, there are suggestions in the Reddit world and other various sources on the internet that if you smoke marijuana before a polygraph test, that you're going to pass your test no matter what. Because polygraphs are basically testing for increased levels of anxiety to certain questions, and many people think that this is how Jason and Cohen were able to pass their polygraph tests. 
And while I 100% know that you can pass a polygraph test while under the influence of marijuana, um, polygraph administers know that too. And it is for that very specific reason that before you take a polygraph test, you must provide a urine sample before the test begins. If it's found out later that you were under the influence of drugs at the time of your polygraph, your test is thrown out and it has to be repeated. So to those making those claims, that's not going to fly with me today. Now, if they think there's another way that they could have gotten a false positive, I'm all ears. I know there are breathing techniques, yada, yada, to use to calm yourself. But that specific reason, the marijuana theory, no way. I'm not here for that BS today. Do some research and try again. Okay, so with no one else at the house at the time of Lindsay's discovery, we must return to that sketchy as crap couple who met up with Lindsay. Neighbors from across the street told police that they saw Lindsay and a couple outside of the house a little before 5.30 p.m. So even though the woman had called letting Lindsay know that it would just be her husband at the showing, it appears the woman decided to show up after all. They describe a six-foot-tall Caucasian man with dark hair and a blonde woman with shoulder-grazing hair who was wearing a colorful business attire dress. Now, this is where the case takes an interesting turn. You see, taking into consideration all that we know, the murder occurred within a short five-minute window. Who could accomplish such a murder in that short amount of time without leaving any evidence whatsoever? Yep, there was no evidence at the crime scene. No blood that didn't belong to Lindsay, no footprints in the blood, no hair, no fingerprints, no nothing. If this was truly a crime of passion, like a murder made impulsively, no one would be able to clean up the crime scene and escape that quickly. The reason investigators thought it might be personal was due to the amount of times Lindsay was stabbed and where the incisions were made. Face and chest is a very personal and intimate kill. It's much more intense in nature than like shooting someone from several feet away with a gun. But it didn't seem to be that personal. So here's the plot twist. Investigators now have come to believe that this murder was committed by like some hitmen or professional assassins. Now, as crazy as this may seem at first, let's get into why this may not be such a crazy theory after all. The police were able to trace the calls made by the mysterious woman back to a burner phone that had been purchased in Vancouver in November of 2007, three months prior to Lindsay's death. The phone had been activated the day Lindsay received her first call from the woman. The phone record showed that the burner phone had made six calls to Lindsay and six calls only to Lindsay. So that phone had not called anybody else except for Lindsay. 24 hours before Lindsay was murdered, Towers confirmed that the phone had made its way from Vancouver to British Columbia. And then after Lindsay's death, the cell phone was never, ever used again. Was Lindsay involved with something dark that would lead her to be executed through the action of a professional hit? 
police decided to look into her background. Lindsay's dad, Jeff, said that when Lindsay came home to visit him on December 14th, she had told her father that she had seen something bad, but she wouldn't disclose what it was that she had seen. And time out, time out, because guys, if you ever see or hear anything bad and you're worried about it, please freaking tell someone or write that shish down. That way, if something bad ever happens to you, you can help investigators figure out what the hell happened to you. I feel like there are so many stories out there of people who are murdered and a friend comes out of the woodwork claiming that their friend told them that they were scared for their life or saw something or heard something bad, but then that friend refuses to tell them anything. Tell someone, write it down, put it in a safety deposit box or under your mattress or tape it to the back of your toilet tank or make a note on your phone. Just do something. Also, while Lindsay was home visiting her dad, she reached out to an old friend once by phone and once through Facebook. It's unsure why Lindsay contacted this person. Her friend like wasn't living in Calgary at the time, so it wasn't potentially to meet up. The friend didn't get back to her, so it's really unclear why she had attempted to contact him. What is known is that the person she contacted was a direct relative of Erickson Lopez del Alcazar, and just a few days before Lindsay's murder, Erickson was arrested after being charged with the largest cocaine drug bust Alberta had ever seen. Two million dollars worth of cocaine was apprehended. So... Police had to consider, was Lindsay's murder connected to this drug bust? Did she share information or have information that led to this bust? Did someone from that gang want Lindsay dead because of the knowledge that she had? Police looked into her past relationship. She had apparently dated a guy named Matt McDuff. And while police had never considered him a suspect, he was involved in the trafficking and sale of legal narcotics in British Columbia and Alberta. However, there was nothing to suggest that Lindsay was involved in that activity herself. Is it possible that someone involved with Matt McDuff, who seems like a real winner, by the way, killed Lindsay to send him a message? Who knows? The police never really looked into that angle. There is a theory that I learned while listening to a Crime Junkie episode about this case that there was like a woman that Lindsay worked with who was romantically involved with a man involved in drug trafficking. So like she knew a person who knew a person. The day after Lindsay was murdered, this other woman abruptly quit her job. And that seems a little bit suspicious. Another somewhat recent thing that happened regarding this case is that someone posted a very disturbing comment on the site lindsaybusiakmurder.com, which is a site created by Lindsay's dad to keep Lindsay in people's minds and update information regarding her case. Apparently, in 2017, someone posted not only a comment, but like a confession and a taunt. This person was claiming to be the murderer. The comment reads, I killed Lindsay and stupid cops will never prove it. So you all got nothing. No one gives a shisha. They didn't say shisha. I'm saying shisha. Anyway, <laughs> except her crybaby dad. Even her fake girlfriends have washed it away. Typical loser chicks. Sandwich cops dropped it because they can't solve shisha. Again, I'm, I'm saying shisha, but they didn't say that. And we're told to drop it. 
Cut the phony investigation. It's done. So go home, losers. Forget about her. The streets always win. Bishes die every day. The comment was traced and didn't lead to anything of substance. So it was really just some pathetic loser with some time behind a keyboard. I did want to mention that Sanish police are pretty pissed about Lindsay's dad, Jeff, creating this website about Lindsay, which has caused some tension, obviously, between Lindsay's family and the police department. Apparently, two years after Lindsay's death, police called Jeff into their office to let him know that they would be converting Lindsay's case into a cold case. So Jeff wanted their records turned over to him so that he could do his own investigation. Officers encouraged Jeff to go get some lunch and that they would be in touch with him soon. Later on, they called him to tell him they were not going to make Lindsay's case cold after all, so he would no longer be able to have access to the records that they had. Lindsay's dad says this makes it obvious that the police are hiding something, but police claim that whenever Jeff gets any information regarding Lindsay's case, he plasters it all over his website. So, their fear is that if he gets a hold of the records, he will jeopardize any chance of them being able to prosecute anyone in the future if further information comes out later. All of that information will become public knowledge and therefore it would be harder to weed out liars and the information they have compiled over those two years wouldn't be allowed into evidence if they ever do get to the point where there was a criminal case. I can understand the police's position, But I can obviously understand being a parent and wanting to know everything that I can about my daughter's death. So yeah, tensions are rising and building with no view of things letting up anytime soon. Police have said that this is not a cold case and that is very much still an open investigation. But with that being said, they have no leads on who the mysterious potential buyers actually are. Police have confirmed that this case will not be solved with any sort of physical evidence because there literally isn't any physical evidence. This case will only be solved with information from someone who is brave enough to step forward and offer them some information. The police know that there is someone within the community that knows something, has seen something, has heard something, and they need that person to come forward and give them the information that they have. There was a running theory amongst couch potatoes turned investigative sleuths, which I think is a really funny way for the police to describe what they and like kind of me are doing. I mean, they're not 100% off base. (laughs) But anyway, there were people who believed that Jason and his mother Shirley were involved in Lindsay's murder. However, police have formally come forward, which is pretty atypical for them to do, by the way. But they have publicly relinquished any doubt that they have about Jason and Shirley and have pleaded with the public to please leave them alone and to stop harassing them. Another theory I'd like to pose, not that there's any evidence pointing this way, but I think it's something worth considering, is that Lindsay was possibly targeted by a demented couple who wanted to murder together and luring out a realtor to an abandoned property would give them access to someone alone. Being a realtor, especially if you're a woman, can be quite dangerous. I know it seems kind of out there, but it has actually happened plenty of times before. Not only have realtors been robbed or sexually assaulted on the job, but there have been a few cases where realtors were murdered at a showing. 
Realtors can unfortunately be seen as prime victims of opportunity, and the fact that the suspicious couple is a couple doesn't change anything. There are a lot of weird sickos out there who, for lack of a better word, get their jollies, I'll put it that way, by murdering together. Whoever killed Lindsay had it planned out. They were so, so very meticulous. They were also incredibly brazen. I mean, keep in mind, they're in this tiny cul-de-sac of like four houses in a residential area. They had no idea that Jason was waiting outside, and police now suspect that when Jason saw the couple at the front door, that was in fact their attempt to leave the crime scene. So these people are so brazen and bold that they were actually planning on committing this heinous murder and then their plan was to just like simply walk out the front door and get away with it then within several minutes they were able to adjust and come up with a new plan on how they were going to escape and they did so successfully canine were brought to the home to see where these people might have gone after killing Lindsay, and it appears that the dogs lost the scent immediately after jumping the backyard fence. So is it possible that they were able to gain access or had a getaway car waiting for them? Lindsay's father promises that he will never stop seeking justice for his daughter. He has been extremely active in the media. He has actually been really great at keeping her name alive in the media. Every year, Jeff holds a walk in Lindsay's honor to keep her memory alive. Every year, the walk concludes in front of the Saanich Police Department because he says these are the people responsible for finding the answers. Jeff, as we mentioned earlier, is not satisfied with the Saanich Police Department's work on Lindsay's case. Jeff is under the impression that Jason had something to do with Lindsay's death and that the police department is covering it up. He is upset because he believes police are withholding information from him, which... Honestly, they probably are. Hello, Sheriff Mitchell from the case of Patrice Andres, anyone? Guilty knowledge information. It's probably due to that guilty knowledge information that they haven't shared with the public that they were able to shut down that false confession from the commenter. I know that Jeff is a dad and he wants to know what happened. And I know it's hard to trust the system. And sometimes there are cases that we cover and are going to cover. And I can't believe how stupid the investigators are being, but... I haven't come upon anything in this particular case that makes me believe that the Saanich Police Department have done anything wrong, but I'm not in the middle of it, so my emotions are not so are not that of a grieving father, so I'm not going to critique his desire for answers. I'd be the same way if it were my kid. Jeff has appeared on Dr. Phil, which would make my abuela ecstatic, by the way. She loves Dr. Phil. And if you go to her house, she would love to share her love for Dr. Phil with you. Jeff has a website called lindsaybuziakmurder.com. Jeff has lost everything in his attempt to find out who killed Lindsay. He lost his job. He sold his cars. He lost his home. Sometimes he feels like he's losing his mind because he is just so invested and willing to give up everything for justice for his daughter. In an ID episode, he says, all I want is justice for my daughter, Lindsay. Is that too much to ask? No, not at all, Jeff. It is not too much to ask. Jeff says he will never stop pushing for justice and bothering the police department until the case is solved or he dies. 
In the Dr. Phil episode, Dr. Phil says that the people who committed such a heinous murder against Lindsay do not stay quiet. They're like, they're not going to stay quiet about it. They have told someone. And if you know any information, you need to pick up the phone. Well, you heard it from Dr. Phil and you better not disappoint him or his bald little head is going to haunt your nightmares. And you better pick up the phone if you have any information about the death of Lindsay Buziak and contact the Sandwich Police Department tip line at 250-475-4313. What do you guys think? Were the two people who were posing as potential buyers in order to carry out an execution for hire? If it was a murder for hire, who hired them and why? Was it the cartel with that drug bust? Was it someone attempting to send a message to people that snitch? Was it Jason who had found out that Lindsay was considering breaking up with him? Was it somehow related to that girl who quit Remax the day after Lindsay was murdered? Was it related to her ex-boyfriend, Matt? Was it a jealous woman, perhaps a woman from Jason's past? Let me know what you think on the post I made on our Instagram account at mysterystillunsolved. Make sure to join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?